0: Hey, folks, welcome to Pivot Point. My name is Joseph DiBiase, and this is my podcast. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Pivot Point. Here we go, another episode. You know, last week I was talking a little bit about living and the questions. Not having all the answers, and uh it's funny how these things happen upon you where uh, when you start having this idea and it, then life surrounds you with more examples of it, you know <laughs> so and I don't know if it's just because I'm tuned in now and i'm I'm seeing it or maybe I'm looking for it, but it it is. It's something that is now always with me, living in the questions. And I got to tell you, it's not easy for me to not want to have those answers. Yeah. It, 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 but I catch myself. I catch myself and I let go and I just allow things to unfold allow myself to feel the uneasiness. Which brings me to this. There are times in my life, your life, our lives, where it feels as though we're having a bunch of headwinds. Things that cause us not to really move forward in the way that we want them to be. And I I know I'm being a little esoteric here, but I don't want to be so specific because what I'm talking about is more of a concept and not just one circumstance. Because if I talk one circumstance, it seems to be trite. But what I'm trying to say is, what I have experienced, and I know other people have experienced, is that when we have resistance, when we have these headwinds, if we can turn those headwinds into tailwinds, and then we can move faster, we can actually go forward. So I guess a good example of that would be, say you, you know you're, you're about to write something. But you're having resistance to it. You don't really want to dig in yet. You don't really want to sit down and write. And if you can take that energy and instead of having it as a headwind and turn it around and make it a tailwind and allow yourself to go into that that place of resistance, and when you do, you find the gems that you've been digging for, rather than allowing the resistance to achieve its goals. You have then taken that headwind and turned it into a tailwind. I know, easier said than done. I think the biggest part is really recognizing resistance and recognizing the headwinds. And it may not just be within yourself, right? You may have circumstances, that are causing some headwind, but if you're able to embrace it, and you can find that you can turn it into a tailwind, and this is going to lead me right into introducing my guest today. So on the show today is April Cleveland. Now, who is she? April is a director, she's an educator, and the creator of the Exodus Ensemble. And they're in santa fe new mexico one of my favorite places to visit the exodus ensemble they create this wild and immersive theatrical events now rather than me describing what that is i'm gonna let april do that and she'll tell you in detail what they do but more importantly in this podcast you're going to hear about april's journey you're going to hear her talk about where she was and what the circumstances were that surrounded her life when she chose to make a choice and start her own theater company in Santa Fe. And this is what I'm talking about. Taking a headwind and make it a tailwind. This is April Cleveland and I talking about her pivot points. (laughs) hello hi okay what a cool studio Uh, thank you yeah this is uh the pandemic version of it i have a a different studio over, I live right across the street from Sony, so I have another studio there, but haven't been, okay. there, in a, haven't been there in a year.
1: <laughs> yeah, where, where's Sony? What neighborhood is that in?
0: That's uh, Culver City.
1: Oh, okay, got it. My yeah. parents are in LA. They're in Santa Clarita.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for coming to the show. Thanks uh, for having me. Of course, of course. So, uh, where are you originally from?
1: Um, I'm originally from Champaign, Illinois, and um, I moved to California to Los Angeles when I was 15. My mom got remarried. So I spent uh, the last two years of of high school out in LA. And now it's been so long that I just say I'm from LA. I feel like mm. I'm from LA.
0: Okay. All right. And what parts of LA were you?
1: We moved to Santa Clarita. Um, okay. So I went to high school in Canyon country. And then after high school, I went and studied acting for four years at the Strasburg Institute in West Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So I feel a lot of attachment to, to like the West Hollywood area. Yeah. And I love it out there.
0: When you were younger, how did you know acting was it for you? Or was it a later in life thing?
1: I all you know, I kind of knew from a very young age, I was going to be a director, but you don't really have access to that as a child you know, well, tell especially me about in Champaign, Illinois. Yeah. Illinois. Well, I just, I was in, I was always in musicals as a kid. So I was always acting, but mm-hmm. I was sort of always eyeing the director and thinking like, that's what I'm going to be when I'm old, when I'm 30. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's why I said, I was like, that's, a, that's an adult's job. So I always yeah. like thought 30 is when I'll do it. Um, but I was acting and singing from the time I was like nine and I was directing um, I was forcing my friends at recess to spend their whole recesses like being in plays that I would direct on the playground. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. So I, and then I studied acting at the Strasbourg Institute to- completely in service of becoming a good director because I felt like, well, a great director probably needs to have like an excellent grasp of, of the actor's craft. Mm. So I studied full time um, at Strasbourg from the time I was 19 until I was about 22 um, and was also directing musicals like over the summer. So like kind of oscillating between um, studying acting, directing musicals and um, working at Starbucks, of course.
0: Right. <laughs>
1: right. The beautiful triad. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The beautiful triad. Oh my gosh. Yeah. When and- um, is your mom, musically inclined or is it comes from your dad's I, side what where does this uh, come from yeah,
1: yeah I think my mom always liked musicals and so I heard a lot of musicals growing up um didn't have access really to uh plays so, you know the only thing I kind of knew about as a kid was like cats mm. and Joseph and um kind of like the big 40 musicals. She was a, she played in marching band when she was a okay. young person. She grew up in the Valley. So that's why we we ended up moving back to California. And I think she played in like a prestigious youth band called the Cavaliers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and there was just always, you know, she was not a singer or anything, but there was always music in my house and wow. uh, she was taking me to musicals. And so that's like how it kind of started. I think.
0: <laughs> I always find it interesting where people get their first idea that mm-hmm. they're going to express themselves this way, whether mm-hmm. it's a writer or a painter or a dancer, mm-hmm. a musician and director. Mm-hmm. And um, I'd have to say you're the first person I've talked to on the show, and I think met in my life that said, yeah, when, I'm, when I get older, I wanna be a director. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, I I find that really amazing that you knew. Mm -hmm. And for me, that just says, this is something really deep in your DNA. This is something that you want to, you want to be a storyteller Mm -hmm. and have your puppeteers, if I can, and that's not a (laughs) condescending, I'm I'm not trying to be condescending to, to mold them. It's like, Clay, you know, yeah. if you can get them to to do what you want, and you're like, there it is, there it is. Mm-hmm. So you studied at Strasbourg, and mm-hmm. um, during that time, did you not want to be an actor then as well?
1: Not, not really. I mean, I, uh, you know, as a kid and like a teenager, I probably did forty community and school plays and musicals, but at Strasbourg especially cuz it was full time i really got enough kicks as an actor just through the work that we did like at the school mm-hmm. and by being you know by, by doing scene work with like other people who were really good um, mm-hmm. but mostly i was watching mostly i was track i knew, i realized like i am not an actor because i was constantly tracking what i was doing when i felt like i was doing it well and i was looking i was trying so much to look at myself um, doing the work itself and sort of like quantify the process so that I could then um, you know, work with actors uh, that it it was pretty clear that, like my friends who are really extraordinary actors weren't really thinking that way, and that they really shouldn't be thinking that way.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, so director's yeah. brain and you you were directing while acting.
1: Yeah. And that's not great, you know, <laughs> <laughs> <No>. so <laughs> and it's not fun. And honestly, it's, it's not very fulfilling because as soon as I would start to feel like I was like gelling, um, mm. in a scene, I would go, what are you doing? What just happened before? You know, just like so much trying to, to track the work that mm-hmm. it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't about, it wasn't fun. You know, it actually mm-hmm. wasn't really expressive. Mm-hmm. Um, but I learned a lot. Um, as a director studying acting, and mm-hmm. I th- I think actually it would serve, and and a lot of directors do study acting, but it serves the director very well to take it extremely seriously, like not just one class, you know, a year or something, but to like really undertake it um, as something that needs to be like mastered, you know, yeah. as well as a director can from the inside out.
0: Absolutely, I have been in music pretty much all my life, yeah. and I came into acting later in life mm-hmm. and uh so it's been about gosh i think 11 years now that i've been yeah. studying acting and acting and i continue to study because it's like um as a musician you got to keep on practicing you just can't just stop and then all of a sudden you think you're you know good to go mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but i bring it up because acting has changed how i compose totally At changes how I read scenes. Mm -hmm. It changes how I um, connect Mm -hmm. in a deeper, empathetic way. And then I translate musically from that place, you know. Did you ever think about... Well, let me go back. Were there directors that you really admired and wanted to model or experiment with like oh I saw how they did that like for me I'll hear something musically and I'm like oh I love that and it may be 30 seconds of something mm-hmm. and I'm like how do I incorporate that into my world cuz I that really resonates with me how is that for you as mm-hmm. a director
1: It's very important to me but it's a more recent development and part of that is bec- the reason is because as a young as a young director I was never exposed to, um, to theater that really inspired me. That, that mm. started when I first traveled. So after the Strasbourg Institute, I actually went to St. John's College in Santa Fe mm-hmm. and I studied, it's a great books program. So the program is um, this all required program. There's no textbooks, only primary texts and everybody studies math for four years, um, philosophy for four years, science for four years, music, Um, and literature and French and Greek. And again, yeah, it's very interesting, but it's funny that you said like study different things in order to um, get good at your craft. And that's why I went to St. John's. I went because I thought, well, what would it mean to have a truly great education as a director? It probably means to read constantly for four years and Mm. to trace um, all of our contemporary ideas that you find in contemporary drama to their antique roots. Mm-hmm. and find where those ideas um come from like mm-hmm. where and they all they all are connected science and philosophy and math and literature and drama and they go back you know thousands of years um but it wasn't until the summer that i graduated from st john's so by that time i was uh 28 or something because i went to undergrad older because i'd been studying acting and i went to london for the first time. I was extremely confident as an actor, as a director, because I hadn't seen I hadn't seen anything. And that and part of that is not being exposed to that much that I thought was better than what I could do as a mm. director. And then I went to London and it was an extremely painful experience for me because <laughs> over and over and over, I witnessed work. That was so beyond what I thought was possible on stage, mm. I, and and that that's when those questions started to come up for me, like how do you do that? How is how are, how is design sort of exploding the theatrical world, and how is design and interplay with acting and just these huge theatrical worlds that um, that really resonated with me, but seemed so beyond my reach, and that's when I started to. Um, Come into contact with directors' work that really inspired me, and those people are uh, Robert Icke, who mm-hmm. is this really astonishing British adapter and director, and then um, Ivo van Hove. And those are those are probably the two directors that that captivate me and feel like mm. they're making the kind of work that I'll that I'll spend my whole life you know, trying to make. And it's actually only been recently that I've stopped trying to emulate them. Mm-hmm. And I've found my jam separately from them as a director. Yeah. I have gotten to a healthier place where it's like, I love what Robert Ike and Ivo Van Hove do. And actually I'll never make work like theirs because I'm not them. Yeah. But that's I'll right. always be inspired and my will, my, my, my well as a director Will always get filled by their work. And I can't, and I don't know exactly how it comes out in my work, but now I just feel really grateful and nourished by like what those directors do.
0: That's so well said. It it does remind me of music, um, Mm -hmm. especially in jazz. I studied jazz at the same time in studying film composition. And you know the idea about jazz is you you take a little bit from this and you take a little bit from that and you take a, and then and you put them in your toolbox you know and and mm. and you put them in this bag and it gets all jumbled up and eventually it's just your own stuff that yeah. starts you just have this inner unction that you start expressing yourself. That uh-huh. may sound a little bit like that or may look a little bit like that, but it's really all through you because now you know what you want to say. And that's what I hear you saying.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's very well said yeah. uh, and and very beautiful toolbox. I, yeah. I love that.
0: Why theater and not film? Or do you care, like want to do film as well?
1: i I respect and, and love film, but I came up, you know, in, in live events Mm. and that's what I, that's, you know, I, I don't want to say like, it's too late for me with film, but I, I am really serious about craft and like what it means. And I'm, you know, I'm not old, I'm 32, but I have been working to be the best director that I can be since I started directing when I was 20. And I'm, I think I'm j- sort of just now really stepping into, um, who I am as a director and I, and I want to respect, like, I, I want to respect film as a, as something that, that one should, that that takes time to be good at, you know? So in a way I feel like it, that's just not my medium, yeah but thank God there's people who do it really well. And I get to delight in it as a viewer, but, um, But for me, like I'm extremely inspired by film and TV, actually, because I feel like and this is this is a controversial thing to say, but I'm extremely bored by almost all the theater that I go see. Um, And I think there's so much good TV and film. Mm -hmm. And if I'm not giving people a reason to not stay home and stream Succession, then they should just stay home and stream Succession because it's awesome and it's yeah. cohesive and the score and it and it's bringing together sound and and yeah. acting and plot and it's doing everything so well. We have to give people a reason to come do it live. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I kind of love that film and TV are so extraordinary because I have to compete with it, and I actually really like that.
0: Yeah, that's and, really and I great. Use, yeah,
1: mm-hmm.
0: go ahead. No, go ahead.
1: Well, just that I. I don't make film, but I take a lot from film and TV in terms of like momentum and sort of like, how do you edit live using like cinematic tools when you're not, you're not in a, you you don't have final cut. How do you create that kind of movement um, in a live setting is such a fun challenge.
0: Oh my gosh. I bet. That sounds great. Cause you're right. You don't, you can't just like, okay, cut away to camera two. Mm -hmm. You have to figure out how to direct the people's eyes over there. Yes. Yes. And, and how exciting that is. That's very cool.
1: And a word we use, um, I'm sure we'll get to talking about Exodus, which is my company, but a word we use as a group that is totally borrowed from, from TV and film is hinging like in, in, when you're watching TV, you can cut into the past. You can hinge like in a moment to something through, uh, through just using images. So we are constantly trying to throw the viewer into a new reality just by, by using image hinges, uh, which is totally borrowed from, from what TV and film do Mm -hmm. so well.
0: I love that you have a realistic view of what it is that you want to do because you're right uh how do you get people from just sitting at home mm-hmm. and watching succession or find any other you know outlander whatever mm-hmm. show that has such great storytelling in terms of the narrative great acting great mm-hmm. music great sound great visual cinematography how do you get them to want to go and sit at and watch mm-hmm. a play and watch mm-hmm. something that's live that can and, and I'm with you. A lot of it is kind of uh and I say this without trying again not be condescending. It's just mediocre. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. not it's not entertaining. It's mm-hmm. um kind of just flat just sits there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I love that this is where you want to go. It's exciting. It makes me want to see your stuff. <laughs> Come on out to Santa
1: Fe. <laughs> Come on out Look, to get, Santa Fe. Yeah. Um
0: What about stories? Where are are you a writer? Where where are you getting your material that you want to show?
1: Yeah. So we uh, use classic sources. Our first project that we created as the Exodus Ensemble is a contemporary version of Ivanov, which is a play by Anton Chekhov. Mm -hmm. And people know Chekhov's work, but they don't know Ivanov, which I really like. They know the Seagull and they know Three Sisters and... um, and cherry orchard but we drew from that text which is in the public domain so we can do anything we want with it and we created this like extremely contemporary 2021 um version together Mm -hmm. as an ensemble and we're showing that now to small vaccinated audiences and the next project we're developing is called Bathsheba. Which is based on the David and Bathsheba story in the Bible, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is is a challenge because that's it's really just one page in the Bible, and we're sort of exploding it into um, into a contemporary version. But mm-hmm. typically, and we're we're new as a company, but I've always been interested in um, in how full old texts are and
0: mm-hmm. what it
1: really means to electrify them and mm-hmm. and and give them a sort of contemporary treatment. Mm-hmm. So. So far, that's, those are the sorts of texts that we're using. And that kind of comes from the St. John's great books background, you know, Mm. like everything, again, there's no textbook. So you learn, you take math all four years, but you learn math by studying Euclidean geometry, actual Euclid, ancient geometry. And you work for four years all the way through to Einstein, but you don't get to read any textbooks that explain it to you. You read Einstein and then you do Einstein and you read Newton and you do Newton. Um, And I just think there's, and and you do that across philosophy, you start with Plato and you and you move up to Heidegger. And, um, and it's by really spending time with those texts themselves that I even came to understand like what it means to be alive in 2021. And so that's mm. what I'm always trying to bridge in, in the work that we do theatrically.
0: That's fascinating. You said what it means to be alive in 2021.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What's your takeaway? What, what does it mean to be alive in 2020? <laughs> well,
1: I think what it means to me is not getting caught up in answers, which it's really easy to do right now. And to always sort of uh, remember that, like, the thing that keeps us alive is a series of questions and paradoxes. Mm-hmm. And uh, going back to the Greek, to the Greeks, you know, a, a play a, a trilogy like Oristia by Aeschylus. hmm mm-hmm it doesn't give you, it doesn't give the the audience or the reader any answers. It asks questions like what's better, the individual or, or the group? Um, what is the, what are the paradoxes that sort of underpin our experience as human beings? And it's the clarity of those questions, which for me are found in really old texts that sort of illuminate, um, that still illuminate what it means to be a person, which is just that it's hard and it's complicated and um, and it's really easy to think that there's wisdom in meme culture, which is like understanding the world in about 10 words. And if you don't understand the world that way, then you're an idiot. And just sort of like pushing against that as much as possible, not by putting on plays that feel old, but by taking the old thing and and making it feel extremely new. Mm-hmm. And honestly, like to my favorite TV shows, are based on like the Greek tragic structure. Like to me, yeah. Succession is a Greek tragedy. Breaking yep. Bad is just like Oedipus, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, everything I watch grew out of, of an old template
0: mm-hmm.
1: that will always work. And sure. Ivanov couldn't feel like the, the project that, we, that we're showing now, it couldn't feel any more contemporary. Like it's full, my actors are all. 23, 24, 25, 26, it's extremely energetic, it's wild, it's irreverent, it's it's uh, it's high octane, fast paced, but it is based on a play written in 1884.
0: Well, and would you say that these older plays and older texts, mm-hmm. they have um, uh, a, a window into our humanity mm-hmm. that I think in our modern world, we've seemed to gloss over. Yeah. We, we've just seemed to, I don't know, have forgotten uh-huh. what, it, what it's like to struggle. Well, we uh-huh. don't want to look at struggle. We don't want to look at um, anything that's hard or, uh, or hurtful. And uh-huh. that's where we all live, though. We all carry something and we all uh-huh. face something every day. Yeah. And I think part of the purpose of entertainment is to be that mirror back of humanity and to be able to say, yeah, I see you, that validation process, right? It's like I'm in the audience and I see somebody, I'm like, yeah, that's exactly how I feel. Thank God someone else Mm -hmm. feels that way. Someone else Mm -hmm. understands how I'm feeling. So when you were in California, what... So you came out here, here meaning Santa Fe, to to study. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Was it then that you decided to create your theater company? Or did you go back? Or how did all this come about? What happened here?
1: Yeah, I'll try to give, uh, I'll try to be concise. So I studied acting for four years at the Strasbourg Institute. And then I went to St. John's and studied, um, you know, math and science and philosophy for four years. Um, Then I went to grad school. Well, I took a year off to apply to grad school, and then I went to um, the theater school at DePaul University in Chicago. I started there, the MFA program um, in 2016, I think, and I graduated. I I really dodged a bullet. I graduated in 2019, so I got to to do the three years and direct five plays and make Astonishing Connections just before COVID happened. Um, Wow. Which was which was really lucky, and uh, so that was in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And then I graduated, and I had a really kind of like amazing but typical career blooming, where I was about to direct this major production of Streetcar mm-hmm. at a big theater in Chicago. I was about to go um, help uh, the director I admire kind of most in the world, Robert Ike, transfer his Hamlet and his Oristia from the West End to the Park Armory in New York City. Mm-hmm. I had a kind of uh, traditional, but exciting career that was starting to happen. And then COVID happened and, um, and everything disappeared, you know, mm. for the whole, I mean, the theater industry collapsed on March 12th when
0: yeah.
1: uh, Broadway made its announcement. I was in previews for a show um, I think it was, oh, the day of the first preview was when we got the announcement and it was just, and then Broadway yeah. and then the whole country, Everything fell up. Yeah. um, and it was really interesting because being a director, being an actor is hard. Being a director is weird because you don't get to audition for anything and get rejected. You have to sort of, you're like, how do I get a job? have mm-hmm. to just convince people who haven't seen my work to hire me but they want to see my work but they can't see my work till they hire me um so it's this very strange <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's it's a very strange industry especially as um uh it's it's strange as a woman director too mm. as a female director um i i get i was constantly sort of thought of as a child uh, you know, when you're older, we'll hire, you know, and I'm like, well, but my peers who are the same age as me, who are, who are dudes are not really being taken seriously. Mm. So are are being taken more seriously. So when it collapsed, I thought like, Oh, I did all this footwork to like, start to start this um, career. And now it's all gone. And I just sort of thought, well, I'll just wait. That's all anyone could do is just like, wait for yeah. theaters to open up again. Um, and in July, my partner who was finishing up his PhD at Emory kind of got us got hired at St. John's, which is where we met and went to school. Mm -hmm. And we had to move like two days later, like he got hired and we had to like pack up our house in Chicago, sublet it and drive to Santa Fe. And it was on my way to Santa Fe. Yeah. It was pretty wild. It was on my way. um, That I got the idea to invite my favorite actors To move to Santa Fe and start an ensemble, but I never thought they'd say yes. So I composed this now kind of like infamous, insane, wild email. Sent it to all these actors I loved, who I who I could never get in the same room because they were all booked out for like years. But they all also worked too. And then a couple weeks later, they all arrived in Santa Fe, and they'd only I'd been there before, and one other actor. I'd been there before. No one else had even been to New Mexico and I kind of like hustled up these three casitas that were going to get demolished soon. And the rent, the rental market and the housing market is, is really crazy out here. And so we sort of fell into this, um, affordable housing opportunity. Mm -hmm. Um, and we all moved in with each other in these three like connected casitas that used to be like one big house. And this was like the height of the pandemic because they came out, they all arrived on September 1st. We couldn't see anybody else. There was no vaccine. We couldn't, we, we didn't see anybody else ever at all. But we woke up every single day and worked together full time on creating a new theater ensemble from the ground up, kind of defining what our values were, picking what project we wanted to do. And then we created Ivanov together from scratch in Um, September and November, and um, wow, yeah, and we didn't show it. We couldn't show it to anybody. My partner would watch sometimes, and then at the very end, before they the actors had to leave because the the houses were getting demolished, um, we showed it to one person, a girl who I went to St. John's with, who who is um, someone who now works for Meow Wolf. I don't know if you've heard of them. Mm Meow Wolf is like the—they started out as like a young ragtag art collective, and now they're this like massive powerhouse immersive art. Um, that's cool. Collective that's that's yeah. funded by George R. R. Martin and uh-huh. is now like the most profitable art collective in the world. So she came to see it. She was our only audience member, and then the actors had to leave. And I spent two months trying to find a new place for them to live. Um, and I did, and then they all came back at the end of February and we've now been, um, performing Ivanov for groups of six vaccinated people at a time and developing our next project together. Wow. Here in San. That's
0: amazing. Yeah. And where are you performing? Are there black box theaters there?
1: So, <laughs> okay, this is pretty crazy, but it's really cool. So they all, six of the actors, I think there's, it depends because sometimes they have to leave and go do TV and stuff, but... At any given time, we have like seven to 10 actors on the ground here in Santa Fe. Six of them live in this house way out in the outskirts of Santa Fe that we call Big House. And a couple of them live in this little house in downtown Santa Fe that we call Little House. So every single day, we all, they either wake up and roll out of bed or the rest of us commute to Big House and we develop the work there. Mm. And then audiences come to Big House. Ah. And Ivanov is this three and a half hour pretty epic experience that also involves like food and beverage, Prosecco and charcuterie boards. And the play, I know, right. (laughs) (laughs) Come on over. And the play takes audiences through every inch of that house. um, Every strange corner outside, even into this Winnebago. And they move, you probably walk (laughs) about seven, 8,000 steps over the course of the three and a half hours, but you're the feeling that people describe is it's like being in a movie.
0: Mm. So
1: you, you know, we, we start, um, in the living room, we move into a bedroom, the action plays out in over 30 different locations on this property inches in front of the audience's face. Um, and so that's actually been the model and it's the only way we can do it. Like it, it's actually really cool, but it came out of necessity because we all were pulling resources. We were living Mm. on food stamps, unemployment, and um any assorted remote gig people could work we couldn't pay for anything brick and mortar but no. what that's done is create this company where we invite audiences into the home where the actors mm. live um and it's it's definitely unlike anything i've ever seen in yeah. in theater so we do like last week we actually did um six shows in 7 days for So we're kind of running it full time, but our max audience is six people. So people come with like, you know, like they come and do like a girl's night or they come with Mm. their friends, but it's this intimate curated audience for one small group of, Mm -hmm. of vaccinated people. (laughs) And we're all vaccinated, which is our kind of like superpower. Yeah. The whole ensemble is fully vaxxed.
0: That's so good. So really the pandemic has given you an opportunity to reevaluate, mm-hmm. come up with a plan, and then start working the plan. Yeah, kind of risk averse,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and um, without people coming in and doing here's the review, you know, and and mm-hmm. hopefully it's a good review. I think it's really great that you have this opportunity to do all this work kind Mm -hmm. of in the shadows and now that (laughs) now that we're opening up yeah and hopefully we'll stay opened up i have my personal doubts because of the way people are treating the vaccine Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm.
0: that we may kind of be in this limbo place for maybe another year um what how do you move forward what's your what's your hopes on this
1: well, I think yeah, it's a good point that we're in this liminal space right now where we don't where we're looking at at least 6 more months of of a restricted life mm-hmm. when it comes mm-hmm. to gatherings. But what I'm trying to do right now is I'm trying to raise $100,000 mm-hmm. in order to support a 6-month developmental period. And what that would do is like Ivanov has been um received like extremely well by people mm-hmm. who have seen it and we've been connected to uh, wonderful circles of supporters, but if we're just depending on Ivanov to to bring in money to support the actors, we'll never get to make another piece of work. Yeah. And we don't want to be a one hit wonder. We want to, and the 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 incredible strength of an ensemble, which is not how the United States works, even though it is how a lot of European theaters work is I have a core group of people who are extremely talented and they will all be in and develop the next projects too. And Mm. what that means is like, once we have four projects under our belt on Monday, you could come and do the Epic Ivanov experience, spend four hours with us, get fed. But on Tuesday you could come and do the 90 minute Bathsheba experience, or maybe you just don't want to do a four hour experience. So we we are offering Mm. um, different, we're offering a variety of immersive, experiential events, um, but we need to be able to develop them. But that this is sort of the perfect time right now yeah. where it's a strange world still. So if we can raise enough money to just support the actors with, frankly, a very small stipend and and, um, and paying for their residents, uh, then in the next six months, we can develop three more pieces and then hopefully, and be exposing people to them. But then once we reach the new year and things mm. start to, change i hope mm-hmm. we will have a full repertoire of um this totally like revolutionized COVID era theater that's mm-hmm. trying to like in the kindest way like do battle with the great netflix um mm-hmm. in in a city that draws people for experiences like what's so great about santa fe is it's got world-class opera world-class fine art world-class immersive art world-class mountains Mm -hmm. but it doesn't have a world-class theater. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that makes this like exactly the place where we should start this thing. And people go, people come to Santa Fe because they're questing for something Mm -hmm. like they're everybody who comes here, everybody who lives here is a little bit different (laughs) and and they want an experience. And so I think like, well, if you're going to make a like super, If you're going to make an experience-based theater company, Mm. um, do it in Santa Fe. So Mm. that's because, you know, even in New York, beautiful, wonderful, great theater. If you start a theater company, no matter how good you are, you're one of a bajillion theaters, no one can even lend support to you because they're supporting the public and they're supporting whatever fledgling theater they care about. Mm. Um, And I think strategically, like other than the fact that I want to be in Santa Fe, because it's the prettiest place in the country. Mm. It's, it's strategically the right place to do this very strange project.
0: It sounds right. It, you know, I've been to Santa Fe three times, maybe four.
1: And what do you do when you come here?
0: Um, It's been mostly for work. It's been, mm-hmm. uh, oh. mostly working with a, uh, fellow composer, uh, friend out who lives there. Mm-hmm. And, um, I try to think if I've come out. Oh no, sorry. There was one time my wife and I came out just for Christmas and we rented totally. a, we rented a condo,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, right. Gosh, I can't remember the street, but it's right near main street where they do all of the luminaries.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. You're close to us.
0: Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, it was really great. Um, mm-hmm. Really, really lovely. And it snowed. And mm-hmm. uh, so, uh, and we, I think we spent a week there and, um, and we just did nothing but hang out, which was so yeah. good. Just Yeah. Un- it's un- enchanting.
1: Yeah. It is. And it's, it's everything. Like it's romantic, but it's also like, it's spiritual, it's artistic. It's like whatever you need to be fed, Santa mm-hmm. Fe will nourish you. Like it's mm-hmm. a, it's such a, special place that I'm mm-hmm. literally stepping away from New York and London and Chicago. Cause I'm like, yeah. you know, and the whole career that I thought I would have because COVID like, you know, when it turned the world upside down, it also turned what's possible in my brain
0: upside yeah. down. How great is that? Mm-hmm. And I would have thought that London, like, okay, you've got New York mm-hmm. and like you just described, it's like, yeah, try to try to stick out in the a sea of, of Broadway. Right. And and London, I mean, I love London, and mm-hmm. the caliber of work coming out of out of London is just. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the it's kind of the standard. I don't know where else is, Agreed. you know, could say that uh, London is uh, second. And
1: mm-hmm. I would
0: imagine that would have been a draw for you to mm-hmm. to stay and to mm-hmm. make your way there. Um, so it's really fascinating that here you are in Santa Fe and you're building something from scratch, yeah. which is, and it's your own thing, mm-hmm. which I, I personally applaud. I think so many times we, we, we think we need to fall into mm-hmm. a, a line rather than this is what I'm doing. Yeah. And, and there's going to be people who will come for the mm-hmm. thing that you do.
1: Mm-hmm. Totally. So.
0: What has been some personal hurdles in this? Some personal challenges? Besides, I mean, I think it's always going to be, well, it's the money. Mm-hmm. um, And I ask this question because of others who are in their own personal journey, right? Mm-hmm. They're doing, I'm, I'm an artist, I'm a sculptor, I'm a dancer. Tell me some of the personal... Uh, And by personal, I don't mean like, well, you know, my boyfriend and I, we didn't get along. (laughs) I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about those inner conflicts, those inner uh, places of self-sabotage, perhaps. Or Mm -hmm. what's what's this journey been like for you, April, in this process?
1: Yeah, well, maybe I can speak a little bit about... uh, the sabotage that was happening before I embarked on this process, Mm. that this process is kind of healed in a way. And of course this this has been very hard here, but what I was trying to do before Exodus, which is the name of my ensemble is I was not happy with the landscape of the American theater. um, Mm -hmm. But I didn't see a, so what I was trying to do as well, I don't like what's out there, but I guess I have to get into the pipeline so that I can get to the point eventually where I can make the kind of work I want to make with the people I want to make it with. So I was still using the model and thinking that like, well, if I get in and I, and I have enough success, then I can make the kind of work I want to make and be in the room with, with people who I think are really amazing. Um, And, and that never felt quite right. uh, But there was, I couldn't imagine anything else. I couldn't imagine. I never wanted to be an artistic director. I'm a Director, mm-hmm. um, I'm not an administrator, and and I wasn't a producer. And um, what happened in my brain when Exodus was formed was confronting the fear of doing it without anyone's permission, because mm-hmm. the self sabotage is that as a director, I need someone to hire me and tell mm-hmm. me that I'm okay, mm-hmm. and I'm and I'm deserved to be directing in their institution, mm-hmm. and over and over again even without realizing it, needing other people's permission and affirmation in order to to do my work. That's limiting, but it's also really scary to not have permission. Like the idea that, oh, I could just just do this however I want um, is actually really scary because it can feel really lonely that there isn't a model um, and that there isn't a way to sort of check in with your path because it's like, okay, well, now I'm directing at this theater, And the next thing is once I get this theater, then I'm doing better. And then eventually I'll get to off Broadway and then Broadway. And then I'll know I'm, I'm okay. Mm -hmm. And when you don't have, when you don't have that template next to you and you're doing something totally different, it's sort of, it was hard for me to know if I was how to measure success, but that's, that was the really liberating thing was I, Oh, I actually have the power to make exactly the kind of work I want to make with exactly the people I want to make it with. And, um, and if I fuck up, oh, sorry, if I mess up, it- <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is a podcast, you can say whatever you want. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Then
1: it's just, then it's just, uh, me. And yeah. that was, that was the fear or the pivot point of mm-hmm. my entire life, um, as a creator and doing it. Uh, here in New Mexico, has been extraordinary. Just in terms of like not having to go through other channels to make decisions, and the I guess the the most challenging parts of doing this are the fact that it's only possible financially um, with by doing it uh, with people living together. Mm-hmm. So. There are no, you know, typically you go home and then you show up for a rehearsal the next day and you go home and we, the actors all live with each other Mm -hmm. and they wake up and their bedroom is the same room that uh, there are scenes in the play in and it's extremely difficult to, you have to be really rigorous about the interpersonal dynamics (laughs) because it all hangs in the balance. Everything, like the work is only possible if people can successfully live together Mm -hmm. at this time. Like hopefully there's a world where um, it won't be only possible through this sort of like intense um, living situation, but for now it is. And that means that we have like organized deep cleans. People Mm -hmm. are assigned, you know, like everyone has to clean the house at this time. And, um, and there's a lot of discussion and trying to balance how much discussion we should have about like how we live with each other and how we work with each other and how we treat each other. Mm. That's the hardest part is navigating. Um, is, is is navigating the close quarters of it all.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like a rock and roll band.
1: Exactly. And they break up and when they break up, the band's over, you know? Yes.
0: Yeah. So, and maybe with the way COVID is going and things starting to open up, uh, that may also provide some breathing room for some people who may need to sleep outside of the set. Mm-hmm. I need to, I need to have my own home space, but mm-hmm. right now it seems to be working. And it also, on the positive side, it's creating this synergy. Totally. That everybody knows what they mean when they look like that, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and they give a Mm -hmm. look. Yeah, this is really, really interesting. Really, um, I don't want to say precarious, but you're, 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 you're you're walking a fine line here, and it's and it's exciting. And we did it. it's,
1: It's the extremeness of it that has given it momentum. Like so often when a theater company is formed. It's for a very long time, a thing that people do a couple hours a day, a few times a week, and then eventually it grows and blah, blah, blah. And what I wanted, which was like a bit ridiculous and extremely ambitious, was like, I don't want to go slow. I want us all to come out here and work 40 to 50 hours a week and create like as quickly as possible, the coolest theater company ever. Mm -hmm. And it is like, it is ridiculous because we do like, we work together 40 to 50 hours a week. But to me, that's the only way to do it. Because one of the reasons I think theater is struggling so much is like, there aren't, there isn't the most important resource of all, which is time. Yeah. And when people have the time that it takes to create a great work of art, they can, but if they don't, then it's going to be mediocre. It yeah. just is, you know? And that's the, I mean, the benefit of commercial industries like film and TV and theater really isn't, is that the money and the time is there no one feels like they have enough time i'm sure Mm -hmm. even in tv and film but there are the resources there to to create something that's remarkable Mm
0: -hmm.
1: much Mm -hmm. sometimes sometimes a remarkable thing is created but i think in theater particularly we have no other resource in the exodus ensemble except time and bodies but that's actually the resource that's almost always restricted in the theater
0: right You know, I was going to ask you about a business model, um, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to ask you this with a bit of a caveat because I'm getting that you don't want to follow a classic business model Mm -hmm. um, because that's going to end up being just the way every other Broadway show is going to be. And they have to pay this person, pay that person, you know, everything is... Mm -hmm done by salary rather than maybe what you all have as a collective. Mm-hmm. And if the theater company grows your own, all own a piece of that collective and you hire mm-hmm. out certain elements to command and come out and you mm-hmm. grow as a unit, I don't know what, what is that business model for you? Or maybe you haven't thought yeah. that far yet because of COVID still.
1: It's an interesting question and it's something that I'm, interested in and looking to have percolate over this next six month developmental period Mm -hmm. because i'm not you know i i am now a producer and Mm -hmm. an administrator but that's because i have to be and i'm not i don't know anything about business um and so i'm meeting a lot of people who do who are fortunately very interested uh in the work that we're doing which is cool and what i'd like to have happen is those conversations happen and people mm-hmm. who know more about these things um, help guide what the business model will look like over the yeah. next six months. But initially I, I was very scared and I felt the pressure to sort of, well, we need to be making revenue immediately from but That's the only way we're going to be able to do it. And I sort of shifted that and talking with some mentors of mine into the like, no, just ask people to support this six months, mm-hmm. Let you know, raise the, raise the 100K and in that period of time, gradually um crystallize a model mm. and don't and actually another uh, what we've been doing now is i was going to start charging for tickets but it'd be very expensive um because it's a max of six people in a house with 10 actors providing an experience for them for almost four hours and so the you know even even a 250 and fifty dollar ticket would not actually cover like Right. anything. So right. what we've been doing now is like, well, let's just expose people to the work and ask for, and it's free and ask for donations. And that's actually been, the average donation has been over $250 a ticket if you break it down. And so that, which is pretty cool. You're like, come do this thing. Um, it's underground, it's in a house, it's exclusive, it's sexy. There's, there's prosciutto and Prosecco and nudity, not going to lie, quite a bit of nudity. It's like the HBO Max of theater. And -hmm. then afterwards I hand them, you know, thank them, hand them a business card that has my QR code to my Venmo on it and then put it in their hands. And that's not sustainable forever. But while we're creating the projects and just trying to show it to people and say like, would you like this to be a permanent fixture in Santa Fe? It's actually been, it's taken the pressure off of me to be mm-hmm. business too fast. Yeah. Um, but it's, but the results have actually been really encouraging,
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: which is cool. And I know it won't last. I know we can't do, we can't do donation only shows forever, but, um, I kind of like that model <laughs> right now.
0: Yeah, You know, you never know how it's going to unfold. Totally. And mm-hmm. just to go back to about your, the hurdle that you had, I, I really wanted to acknowledge what you said about Mm -hmm. giving yourself that permission to do your own thing. You don't have to follow this path and that path and this path. And then finally, Mm -hmm. someone's going to give you this opportunity. You're out there doing it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's taken, I'd have to say, it's taken me a number of years to understand that. I mm-hmm. think and that's partly just the way educational systems have have groomed us and our society. you know we're taught to go to college, uh, go to school, get an education, go to college, get in more education, go to higher education,
1: mm-hmm. and, then you,
0: <laughs> and then you're ready to work at somebody's factory. right And that yeah. factory could be called a white-collar job. yeah, you know it's it's whatever and that for yeah. me that's draining. Mm -hmm. Whereas being your own person, yes, you have all the risk on your shoulders Mm -hmm. and you rise and fall at your hand. But how exciting is that as a journey? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Um, but I do know other people Mm -hmm. who don't want to take that kind of risk. Like, you know, what I do is all freelance. I don't work for anybody. Mm-hmm. And my mom for years has always uh, was like, I can't live that way. I don't know how you can live that way. Mm-hmm. And she's right. There are many times I wish I just had that steady thing that I knew I could count on. But then every time I'm on a film project or any project, mm-hmm. I'm always glad when it's over.
1: <laughs> because yeah. I,
0: have, I have my life. I can then mm-hmm. go and start working on something else that I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And there's just this ebb and flow. And it's, it, I just really love that. And so, again, going back to what your journey is and what you're saying, I'm, I'm delighted that you have found this mm-hmm. at the age that you found it. Because I think it takes, it takes a lot of courage. And mm-hmm. I can say for myself, I don't think I had that kind of courage earlier on. So I made, some, I made certain choices that led me mm-hmm. down certain paths. Um,
1: but frankly, you might've, if COVID had happened when you were my age, because it took away everything, yeah,
0: that's, you true. Know, everything. that's true. everything, it took
1: away the, all the security I had and the gigs I had coming up. Um, mm. it wasn't a choice really. The choice was like, do I wait for an industry to open up again? Having lost everything when, you know, it's gonna be a very long rollout for theater and I'm not, yeah. and, yeah. uh, so it was sort of just, Like, yeah, it took courage, but it was a thing that um, I had a lot of assistance by. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The cruel forces of the universe, you know?
0: Well, you know, it's funny you say that, because I think a lot of time, what we think are cruel forces of the universe really are there to guide us into a direction. Like, Mm -hmm. I, I can't tell you how many times I'm like, I hate what's going on. And yet it was the best direction for my life it, it yeah.
1: just it's the it best thing was... that ever happened to me. i mean it sounds like obviously that's a crazy thing to say because a lot yeah. of terrible things happened but yes. um and and it's been a disaster uh unlike anything else. yeah
0: yeah but like anything we've ever lived through i mean right. that's you know yeah I, I never in my wildest dreams did i think oh i'd be living through a pandemic yeah yeah that's taken millions of lives yeah What's next? Next show, when's it coming?
1: <laughs> uh, well, that, you know, you asked about challenges. One of the big challenges now is we, we had nothing but time to create Ivanov. But now that we're showing Ivanov, it's become very difficult to balance uh, showing it with developing the next project. Mm. Um, because since Ivanov is a three and a half hour event, um, and I don't have anybody, but it's just me and and the ensemble. There's not stage. There's not people who like come and set up, and then and, like you go into your green room as an actor. They do it all. They preset. They cue to cue. They create the sh- the food and the beverage points. Um, so if we do Ivan, that's the entire day for me and mm-hmm. the actors. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole day, and we mingle afterward. It's such a like immersive thing that it's like we don't do the play and then send people home. We invite them into our front yard. And eat more and drink more with them, mm-hmm. um, get to know them. And that usually lasts about an hour. So a huge struggle is figuring out like how do we develop Bathsheba while we're also trying to show people Ivanov. So my my I intended to finish Bathsheba by the end of May, but that's just not going to happen. So mm-hmm. I think, I think I need to raise, fundraise more um, by showing Ivanov this month. And then let that be the padding um, to be able to pay the actors rent and pay them a little bit so that we can focus more on Bathsheba. But Mm. Bathsheba will be, as opposed to a a massive event, it'll be a 90 minute play, we hope. Mm -hmm. Um, And as opposed to moving the audiences around the entire compound, it will be sort of the opposite where the audience is sitting in a place, but there's action in 360 degrees around them. And That's a ton awesome. of, we're really focusing on like, how do we integrate screens in a really exciting way and live mm-hmm, feed mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, and just have like eight eight frames of simultaneous action at every point and sort of how do you make it as exciting as moving like through a whole compound, but you're sitting still. right So can we, so the, our question is, can we accomplish that? That's what we want to accomplish in Bathsheba. Mm. So hopefully, I think Bathsheba should be ready at least for like initial viewings um, within the next couple of months.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that sounds awesome. And <laughs> yeah. maybe by then we'll be able to travel out and come see it.
1: <laughs> that would <laughs> be fantastic. A, yeah, that would be great. We'll have a that seat for great. you and your wife and anyone you want to bring.
0: That sounds awesome. <laughs> April, this has been really great. Thank you for My taking pleasure. the time. Yeah. And I'd Thank love you. to check in with you again, maybe, I don't know, six months from now, three months from now, and just see. We'd love that. What's happening? And we could do a, maybe a quick pickup in 10 minutes and let me know where you are. And, I, and I'll have it as part of an introduction when I'm doing my next podcast.
1: That sounds so great. Um, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Bye. Okay. Who wants to go to Santa Fe? Raise your hand. I know I do. We can meet in Albuquerque. Well, I'll take a drive up and we go to see Exodus. I mean, I would love to be in an immersive play. That just sounds amazing to me. And, you know, I have to say, I just applaud her courage. She could have waited, right? She could have waited for things. Maybe she'll get another opportunity. Maybe not. But instead, she did. She took she took the headwind and made it a tailwind fantastic oh did you catch it she's not so caught up in the answers right now sound familiar <laughs> yeah she's living in the questions okay next week my guest is Bo stroop now i've known Bo for a very long time we have quite a history and I gotta tell you, if you ever heard Bo sing, you'll never forget it. Amazing tenor. Alright, that's next week on Pivot Point. In the meantime, if she's doing it, why not you?